The scripture for today's sermon comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. The word of God speaks to us. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word to us. Good morning. Hey, yo. It's good to be with you guys. For those of you who don't know me, my name is JJ. I get the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at Frontline Edmond. And I also get the joy of opening up God's word in Philippians 1 as we consider the theme of discernment this morning. This is a, a one-off sermon as we transition between, we just completed uh, a year in the book of Mark. If you're new or visiting with us today, it was a hefty accomplishment. Um, and uh, so today I get the opportunity of diving into a particular topic and looking in a particular chunk of scripture in the book of Philippians. And I don't usually do this, but discernment is such a, a weighty topic, a significant one, that I have books to recommend to you. Uh, one is called How to Think, A Guide for the Perplexed. Are you perplexed? I often feel perplexed. Uh, How to Think, A Guide for the Perplexed by Alan Jacobs, former professor of mine at Wheaton College, maybe the most well-read Christian alive. Um, but uh, this, is, this is a fantastic little book. It's a small book, but it's potent. So I recommend that to you. And then uh, this book, which I'll be uh, referring to later here in the message, All That's Good, Recovering the Lost Art of Discernment by Hannah Anderson. And she lives with her husband in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, working in rural ministry. Uh, but she is an incredible exegete, Bible scholar, thinker, and uh, this book is really, really good. So, two books on discernment to commend to you. Pray with me over this text. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of opening your word together. Without fear of persecution, thank you that we can worship openly, unlike so many of our brothers and sisters around the world. Lord, we pray that you would raise our affections this morning, that we would prize your word, that you would stir our hearts with what we find in your word. Lord, we pray that you would instruct us, that you would feed us, that you would encourage us, that you would equip us. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Maybe if you're like me, you've had that moment where a friend expresses an opinion that surprised or maybe even disappointed you. And you might have said to yourself in that moment, I thought he would have had more discernment than that. Or, I thought she would have had more discernment than that. Moments like that 
cause us all to reflect both on the importance of discernment and the increasing lack of it in our world. Brilliant sociologist Jonathan Haidt recently published an article in The Atlantic with the provocative title, Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. With the subtitle, It's Not Just a Phase. It's a real cheery article. But Haidt explains how, over the course of the last decade, with the help of social media, a lack of discernment has basically gone viral. With the advent of the like, share, and retweet buttons, Haidt says, pushing each other's buttons has gone to a whole new level and taken on a whole new meaning. And as sociologists have begun studying these phenomenons, they found that posts that trigger emotions in us, especially anger at what sociologists call outgroups, those people, are the most likely to be shared. You see a post that triggers your emotion at an outgroup, that's the post that you're most likely to share. Social media has become a sort of a game, but not a really fun game, a game that encourages dishonesty and mob dynamics. Social media platforms are almost perfectly designed, researchers are finding out, to bring out our most moralistic and our least reflective selves. And the volume of the outrage that's pouring out of all of us is shocking. Now hold that thought and listen to this description of discernment from Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson. He writes, True discernment means not only distinguishing the right from the wrong, it means distinguishing the primary from the secondary, the essential from the indifferent, the permanent from the transient. And yes, it means distinguishing between the good and the better and even between the better and the best. It's the ability to make discriminating judgments, to distinguish between and recognize the moral implications of different situations and courses of action. The kind of thing that a tired parent is really great at, right? Now, ask yourself this. What Ferguson is describing here, how might discernment fare in an environment that Jonathan Haidt describes as encouraging dishonesty, mob dynamics, and our most moralistic and least reflective selves? What we're finding is it doesn't fare very well. Maybe more than any time in history, we're badly in need of a recovery of the lost art of discernment. So here in Philippians 1, we'll learn from Paul why he thinks discernment matters and how we can cultivate it. Now, the opening of this letter shows us that Paul's in prison, but he's still praying not just for himself, but for the Philippians. And he says to them in verse 5 that his prayers for them are actually joyful work because he considers them his gospel partners. Paul's in essence saying to them, We share this deep oneness with each other because you've been financially supporting me as I do this missions work, and we have this mutual passion, we have this shared partnership as I work to proclaim the good news that God has come close to us in Jesus. As you read through the rest of the letter, you can see that Paul is thanking them for providing for his financial needs while he's in prison. Now, they weren't sending Paul snacks and magazines Because people thrown in Roman prisons usually died there. So what they were probably doing was keeping him alive, sending him food, maybe even sending people to check on him or attend to his needs. Through their sacrificial giving, these people are keeping Paul alive. And so, of course, he's praying for them. And as he tells them how he has been praying for them, in verse 6, we come to one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. Verse 6, Paul says, 
and I am sure of this. Why am I so filled with joy when I think about you and I remember your generosity with gratitude to God? Paul says, not just because I'm grateful for your generosity and your support, but also because of my settled confidence that God himself is going to finish what he started in you and one day all of you will be radiant. Verse six, he who began a good work in you, Paul says, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer famously said that the whole message of the Bible can be summed up in just three words. God saves sinners. We all deserve punishment because we failed to give thanks where it's due. We're all spiritual plagiarists. We're glory thieves. We take credit for things we didn't earn, things we don't deserve, and so we're all deservedly under God's just anger against our evil and our rebellion, but God saves sinners. In his kindness, this is the kind of God who actually works to rescue his enemies. And in his kindness, he goes first. (laughs) He offers us life in Christ. And so what that means is that Christianity is not a club we join, despite how some of us might have been raised. But Christianity is actually a rescue out of death. It's a bringing the life of our spiritually dead selves by God, and he does it all by himself. Even our ability to trust him is a gift from him, scripture teaches us. And we're not robots, we're not puppets. We make choices that matter. We make choices for which we'll be justly held accountable. But one of the best parts of God going first, Paul's getting at here in verse six, is that he always finishes what he starts, and nobody can stop him. Verse six, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What God began in you, God will complete in you. He's the only artist who's never abandoned a canvas or a sculpture. And too many of us in this room have probably wrongly assumed that even if Christianity is good news, It's the kind of good news that only gets you so far. The kind of good news that only gets you so far. For those of us who maybe only understand Christianity in part, Christianity can feel a little bit like being let out of a life sentence in prison, only to walk the streets with no money, no job, no prospects, wondering how you're going to make it out on your own. Getting out of jail, that's good news. Getting out of jail and having no idea how you're going to live, well, that's good news that only gets you so far. But Paul's saying that Christianity is good news from beginning to end. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, later in this letter comes probably the most helpful description of precisely how Christianity is good news from beginning to end in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 where Paul famously writes, work out, Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's actually God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is a really, really important chunk of scripture. Notice what Paul's saying, what he's not saying. Paul's not saying you don't have to work because God's at work, but rather you can work because God's at work. In other words, God supplies to you both the desire 
and the ability to obey. But you won't experience that unless you get up and work it out for yourself. And Paul says, and when you get up and you work it out for yourself, do it trembling as you go with awe and gratitude in the face of his undeserved kindness. That's what fear and trembling means. God working doesn't mean we don't work. And us working doesn't mean God doesn't work. Nor is it as simplistic as God does his part and then we come along and do our part. God doesn't just give us the ability to obey him without the desire or the desire to obey him without the ability. He gives us both. And he wants us to know that everything that he calls us to, he's gonna carry us through. And as you grow in maturity as a Christian and you start anchoring your heart in this truth that he's never gonna leave you to fend for yourself, you'll discover that it's this incredibly powerful incentive to get to work. Because when you realize you can't fail to finish the work, you'll find that you can't wait to get to work. Paul's saying God's work doesn't replace our work, it enables it. So people, many people in our culture, who believe that God only helps those who help themselves, which is something Ben Franklin said, not Jesus, are more prone to give vent to self-righteous rage towards the people that they view as not helping themselves. You see what I'm saying? If you believe that your success is due to your superior effort, it's hard not to feel superior. It's hard not to look down on others with contempt and judgment. But that would be to lack discernment. No wonder Paul wants us to cultivate discernment. So the first thing I want you to see in our passage is that we need discernment. We need discernment to stay confident in our sanctification. That what God started, God is completing unto the day of Jesus Christ. What else does Paul think we need discernment for? Look at verse 7. In verse 5, Paul just called them, as you saw, his partners in the gospel through their financial support of him. And again in verse 7, he takes up the term again. He calls them partakers or co-partners with me of grace. Both notice in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul's not stringing together here a series of disconnected thoughts. What he's counterintuitively saying is his imprisonment is precisely how the gospel is being defended and confirmed to be true to a watching world. So that's why Paul can say in the very next verse following our passage, verse 12, hey, don't worry about me. I want you to know that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, verse 12. And again in verse 16, he describes himself as being put in prison for the defense of the gospel. Think how radically countercultural this is for Paul to think and talk in these ways. If, like me, you've been raised in this Western culture that worships comfort, that bombards us with thousands of daily invitations to open our wallets and to buy our way out of every imaginable form of discomfort, we're a little bit flabby spiritually. It's not our first instinct to connect our suffering with God's kingdom purposes. That's not where we go first. Even worse, we tend to reflexively take offense at God when suffering hits. We tend to demand an answer from him as to why he's allowed something into our lives that we don't feel like we deserve. 
All too often, unlike Paul, we lack discernment in our suffering. We forget that our suffering is not just about us. We don't pause to remind ourselves how God has used his people's faithful endurance of suffering as one of the ultimate apologetics for the resurrection of Jesus for thousands of years. We tend to lack spiritual imagination in our suffering. It's sad to say that if Paul was like many 21st century American church attenders, attracted to Christianity as a means of what they think will be therapeutic comfort, Paul would be much more likely to complain to view his imprisonment as an obstacle instead of an opportunity. Hey, God, I thought you called and commissioned me to spread the good news. Now I've got thrown in prison for obeying you? Is this how you reward your followers? (laughs) Explain to me, God, how I'm supposed to spread the gospel if you just leave me in here to rot. That's not how Paul thinks about his suffering or his imprisonment. That's why he can say in his final letter as he awaits probable execution in 2 Timothy 2, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I do everything for the sake of the elect, these people that God's graciously rescuing, so that they may also obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here's a man who has brought discernment to bear on his suffering and his imprisonment. He has the discernment to separate his own comfort from the advance of the gospel, and he can view suffering as something to faithfully endure as a means of displaying just how much Jesus is worth rather than as an invitation to feel sorry for himself. I may be in chains, Paul's saying, but you can't stop the good news about Jesus from spreading. And hey, you know what's funny? Locking me up's only served to spread the gospel farther and faster. Isn't that amazing, Philippians? No wonder Paul urges us to cultivate discernment. In a therapeutic age that worships comfort and that demonizes every form of pain, Paul's saying we're going to need discernment. Discernment to stay the course in suffering. What else does Paul think we need discernment for? Look at verse 8. He says, For God is my witness. I'm about to tell you what's on my heart, and you can't see my heart. So I'm swearing to you that this is what I really think and feel. I'm not just saying it to be nice. God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus himself. Paul's saying, We're apart, but we're deeply united. I'm in chains. And you're free, but I don't resent that. I don't experience you as indifferent. I experience you as with me in this, partnering with me in this. And I love all of you deeply. Now here in the West, people sell us books and make us listen to TED Talks by making us the subject of what they're writing or saying. So it doesn't really surprise us that that's Paul's focus in this letter, the people he's writing to. But it should surprise us. We're in danger of missing how stunning Paul's focus is in this letter. He's in prison, but he's thinking about the Philippians. I may be in prison in the kind of conditions that inevitably snuff out life. I may be suffering and vulnerable. My future may be filled with uncertainty, but you know what, guys? 
When I think about you, when I pray for you, I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ, verse 8. And verse 7, I hold you in my heart. And what's more, verses 9 through 11, here's a whole list of specific things I'm praying for all of you while I rot here. (laughs) When Paul talks about the affection of Jesus Christ in verse 8, he's probably thinking, scholars agree, about the emotional life of Jesus. The emotional life of Jesus that was obvious to everyone who walked with him in his earthly ministry. Jesus, 100% God, 100% man, filled with affection for his friends. Jesus, who experienced loneliness and longing for companionship. Could you not stay awake and pray with me? Jesus moved with compassion when he saw the hunger of the crowds, that they were scattered like sheep without a shepherd, and he healed them. He was affected by their suffering. Jesus from the cross in agony, interceding for his enemies. Jesus from the cross in agony, making sure that John would take care of his mother. Now Jesus has invited Paul into a way of being in the world where our own suffering doesn't have to squeeze out care and concern for other people. For Paul, presence equals joy. For Paul, having a healthy heart means being filled with concern for the spiritual well-being of your brothers and sisters when you're absent from them, carrying them in your heart, and being filled with joy whenever you're reunited with them again. What Paul's modeling for us here is if your heart's healthy, the absence of your spiritual friends is going to bring longing, and their presence is going to bring you joy. One of the toughest, most resilient people who's ever lived can freely say, verse 8, with no shame or self-consciousness, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, if you've experienced abandonment and absence, particularly in a formative season of your life like your childhood, you may have closed your heart off from other people in ways you don't even yet fully realize. But Paul's relationships even as an apostle, even as an author of scripture, aren't one-way streets. He doesn't just give comfort and help. He receives comfort and help. I don't know if you've ever bumped into somebody like this, but I've run into people who wrongly view Christian maturity as graduating beyond two-way relationships with other Christians to one-way relationships, where now you're so holy where you only give help, but you don't need help anymore. Paul knows nothing of this kind of graduation. In his final letter before his death, 2 Timothy, he can write to Timothy and say, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Being controlled by others, sure, that's immaturity, but being unaffected by others is not maturity. So you might want to ask yourself, a sign that you may have closed parts of your heart off to other people is actually priding yourself on not needing anybody. Silently judging others who express relational loneliness or who long for deep friendships. If you think of those people as weak, that may be a sign you've closed your heart off to the joy of giving yourself fully to other people like Paul models for us here. That may be a sign that you've made some kind of unconscious vow to never need anyone again after experiencing abandonment and mislabeled it inner strength. 
Living to avoid the pain of loss and abandonment and separation isn't strength, that's weakness. Working to remain relationally aloof and independent isn't a sign of spiritual maturity, but a sign of spiritual immaturity. Now, I've experienced people dig in and feel a little bit defensive when I use these words in these ways, so let me clarify what I'm saying. Stephen Covey's famously pointed out that we're all called to move out of our mom's basement and pay our bills, okay? That's moving from dependence to independence. (laughs) That's good. You should do that. But the point is that we aren't designed to stop there. In American culture, independence is an end in itself. It's home plate. But in the Christian life, that's third base. We become independent precisely so we can keep going and become interdependent. Interdependence is greater than independence. Part of growing into maturity, part of verse 10, being made pure and blameless for the day of Christ is like Paul, being increasingly filled with the affection of Christ for your brothers and your sisters. God's love doesn't just flow into you in order to increasingly keep you from sin, but his love also flows out of you to ensure that you don't keep yourself from relationship. He made you to care about other people. He made you to carry them in your heart. When God makes a man or woman spiritually alive to him, he also makes that man or woman spiritually alive to other people. No wonder Paul urges us to cultivate discernment. In an age of isolation and autonomy, we need discernment. Discernment to stay connected to our sisters and brothers. So what does it look like to cultivate discernment? Look at verses 9, 10, and 11, the remaining verses in our passage. A quick side note. Anytime a prayer of Jesus or one of the apostles is recorded for us in Scripture, we should hold our breath and lean in like we're about to open a Christmas present. In the prayers of the New Testament, profound truths are put on display. A window is opened into the very mind of Christ, into the very mind of Paul the Apostle. We should be thinking, what's he going to pray for them? What does he think above everything else he could say, he should say to God on their behalf? And so Paul says, verse 9, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That word translated discernment is sometimes used more literally to refer to your senses, to notice or detect something. You might taste something and talk about discerning a hint of vanilla in it. Other times, it's used more metaphorically, like here in our passage, to refer to the capacity to understand something, to have insight into something. If you've ever walked in the wilderness with somebody who spent many hours in nature, you'll immediately notice that they're seeing and hearing a whole host of things that are completely lost on you. Your senses, your vision, your hearing might be just as good or better than theirs, so what's the difference? Hebrews 5.14 describes those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. 
What's the difference? The difference is that their senses have been trained by constant practice to see or hear those baby foxes you are about to step on, that owl behind you, that hawk flying high above you. Because discernment is like a sixth sense. If your eyes see color and your tongue tastes flavor, your powers of discernment through constant practice can learn to recognize and savor what Paul calls in verse 10, excellence. So what is excellence? The word translated here in verse 10 is excellent means what's worth more or what is superior. In other words, as Sinclair Ferguson already hinted for us, discernment's not just about distinguishing between good and bad, but even between good, better, and best. In short, what's excellent is what's worth it. What's excellent is what won't lead to regret. What's excellent is what's superior. And learning to discern what's excellent is learning what's most worthy of your time and your money and your attention. What's most worth giving up other things in order to gain? What's most worth refusing to give up even if it means losing other things that maybe even your peers prize and value? Notice Verse 9, Paul pairs knowledge and discernment with love. With love. His prayer is that their love may abound more and more, notice, with knowledge and all discernment. And that's striking because most people today think you can choose truth or you can choose love, but you can't have both. You can care about ideas or you can care about people, but you can't have both. But that's not true because love without truth isn't really love. And truth without love isn't really truth. Paul knows that, and so he's saying that the whole point of growing in discernment is for the sake of growing in love. Discernment is for doing good. Paul's connecting for us that thinking well goes hand in hand with loving well. If you want to care about people, you have to care about discernment. And a lack of discernment always leads, ultimately, to a lack of love. You know, I found it really interesting in recent years that people in my life who've been swept up in conspiracy theories or who have neglected their loved ones for the sake of their career or their comfort or who majored on the minors and became obsessively fixated on secondary things always, without fail, diminished their own capacity for loving others well. That's because a lack of discernment always leads to a curving inward, this endless introspection. But approving what's excellent increasingly leads us outside of ourselves. 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul says to Timothy, let me sum up everything I'm saying to you so you don't miss it. It's really pretty simple. This is the aim of our charge, faith working through love. I want you to trust God more so you can love better. Discernment isn't merely for being correct. According to verse 11 of our passage, it's for, quote, being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to break a preaching rule here by reading you a long quote. I may lose you, but it's just too good. So I went round and round with myself and I decided to break the rule. This is from that book by Hannah Anderson. So I hope that you'll agree with me after you hear what she has to say that uh, 
Her book is worth picking up. Listen to what she says. None of us can become discerning on our own. In fact, in his book, How to Think, uh, Alan Jacobs notes that none of us can actually think for ourselves. We can't do it. We're designed to live in community. Human beings process information and come to decisions in, Jacob says, necessarily, thoroughly, and wonderfully social ways. This can be hard to admit, especially for those of us who like to imagine ourselves independent thinkers. We can see how other people are influenced, of course. When they offer an opinion, we think to ourselves, well, of course you think that. Just look where you get your news. Look what church you go to. Look at your family background. But when we have an opinion, Anderson writes, somehow we believe we reached it independently through nothing but sheer unassailable logic. The truth is that the leaders we follow, the communities we're part of, and the organizations we support all play a role in shaping the decisions we make. That's why Paul calls us later in this letter in Philippians 4 to, quote, do what you've learned and received and heard from me and seen in me. Moving from the theoretical to the practical, he offers his own life as an example of how to find goodness by living out the principles he's just taught. And I love this caveat she offers. Initially, this may sound like arrogance or a power grab, especially for those who've been a part of authoritarian religious communities. But remember, Paul's goal has always been to teach us, notice, how to think, not what to think. When Paul calls us to follow him, he knows that we will be following somebody. So it's important that we follow somebody who's following Christ. He's also affirming the importance of seeking wisdom through community. Even if we could think for ourselves, we'd be foolish to do so. None of us are so wise, so educated, so experienced, or so insightful as to be able to see everything clearly all the time. A fool's way is right in his own eyes, Proverbs 12 warns us, but whoever listens to counsel is wise. It's a great book. We say in our culture, oh, she's finally thinking for herself. And what we mean is, she's finally thinking in a way that we agree with. (laughs) Nobody thinks for themselves. And that's okay. It's important that we understand that and then ask ourselves, who are we following? Because if we're following people that aren't following Christ, they'll lead us astray. Our passage at the beginning of the letter, and a very similar passage at the end of the letter that Hannah Anderson just referred to, actually bookend this whole letter to the church of Philippi. He concludes his letter by saying these famous words in Philippians 4, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is discernment. Approve what's excellent. Celebrate and lift up what's praiseworthy. Diligently hunt for and feed your soul with what's prized. You're gonna find yourself, if you do this, radically out of step with a broader culture that's increasingly feeding itself on self-righteous rage and an eagerness to punish anybody that we each think is ruining everything. 
And that's because as a culture, we haven't come to terms with the brokenness of our world. We haven't come to terms with the brokenness of our own hearts. And so we keep falsely and immaturely thinking things aren't that bad. And that everything that's wrong with the world is always outside us and never inside us. And it could be so easily fixed if we could just get rid of the wrong sort of people. And of course, we ourselves always just happen to be the right sort of people. Guys, social media is a multi-billion dollar business. And it's a multi-billion dollar business making money off of inciting your anger at those other people. So that the more time that you and I spend on social media being stirred up against the wrong sort of people, doing the wrong sort of things, the less time we have left to cultivate discernment. And in fact, when we do that, we're not only pausing our spiritual growth, we're actually regressing. Because according to what Paul is saying here about discernment, when you become more expert in what you're against than in what you approve as excellent, you go backwards. You actually let yourself be discipled into deformation. When we understand discernment to be primarily knowing what to watch out for instead of what to prize, as Paul says, we're ironically being duped by algorithms. The Christian life is meant to be marked by deep joy, even in the midst of sorrow, chaos, and the wheels coming off. Because we've heard good news that's broken in from outside. The rescuer's come. He's mending our broken hearts. He's mending our broken world. Someday soon he's going to come back and he's going to make all things new. And that's what feeds our souls. And other people who are living out of that same reality are what feed our souls. We in this room should be the most resilient people in our entire society. Because if we've anchored our souls in these truths... We're not going to drive into the ditch of blind optimism. We're not going to drive into the ditch of despair. We're going to be a resilient people, characterized by joy. Sober joy, but joy. If there's any excellence, Paul says, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The beauty of discernment is that it's timeless. Discernment protects us from any kind of spiritual intellectual obsolescence because There's new kinds of crooked being created every day, but the same old truths cut straight in any age. When you've been trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil, it doesn't matter if you suddenly encounter some new teaching because you've been immersing yourself in the same old teaching. Opinions are formed every moment, but discernment is cultivated, Paul tells us, over a lifetime. As the old joke goes, a tourist is wandering around New York and he stops and asks a local, hey, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? And the local answers, practice, practice, practice. (laughs) How do you grow in discernment? Practice, practice, practice. Discernment is learned in the cut and thrust of life lived through the lens of Scripture. Deuteronomy 6 describes it like this. These words that I command you today, it should be on your heart. You should teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and even when you lie down and when you rise. When we practice discernment in this way, instead of trying to figure out which fire to put out next, 
we now just become all purpose prepared for whatever is coming next. We'll find ourselves less reactionary, less anxious, less suspicious, less cynical, less weary, because we're spending more time contemplating beauty and less time looking for flaws. Because what Paul's saying is the more we obsessively scan for flaws, the less of them we're going to be able to truly see. You can't spot crooked unless you have a deeper knowledge of straight. Have you noticed how rage has this built-in obsolescence? What's making everybody angry today isn't what's going to make them angry tomorrow. It's like you have to constantly update your anger software. You're constantly trading in your anger for a newer, more relevant model. But what's so beautiful about what Paul's teaching us is that what's excellent today will still be excellent tomorrow. No wonder Paul urges us to cultivate discernment in an age of self-righteous rage, in an age of deceptive algorithms. We're going to need discernment. We're going to need discernment to stay concentrated on what's superior. Stand with me. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom of your word. We thank you for how timeless it is, how timely it is. Lord, we pray that we would grow this year as a people of deep joy and discernment. Lord, we long to approve what's excellent. Lord, refine our tastes. Lord, teach us how to spot beauty even in the midst of brokenness and decay. Lord, train us how to see the good, to hunt for it vigilantly until we find it. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that you chose through the greatest discernment that any human ever had to endure the cross and despise the shame for the joy set before you. Thank you that we can exercise discernment because you exercise the greatest discernment. <laughs> you said, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Thank you for submitting yourself fully to the will of the Father. Thank you for taking our punishment. Open our eyes.